if you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, there's a basic reality that you must grasp. It is this. Not every Christian is a Christian. There are people who claim to have accepted Christ as their Savior. They've been baptized. They go to church. They read their Bibles. They live a religious life. And they may even be convinced in their own minds that they are pleasing to God. But they have not been transformed by the power of the Gospel. The Bible consistently teaches that our innate moral corruption is so severe that nothing less than a dramatic work of the Spirit of God is necessary to liberate us from our sin. So it is far easier to pretend to be a Christian than it is to actually be one. It can be tricky to be a false Christian, but it takes supernatural intervention to be a real one. We must be born again. Now, such talk strikes many in our day as far too pessimistic. People really aren't that bad, are they? Does it really take that much to convert a soul? But our culture, and too many professing Christians in it, we must remember, are like children playing in the living room of a house that is on fire and is soon to burn to the ground. Their father carries their unconscious mother out of the house and cries out from the front lawn to the children who are playing, get out of the house! Run to Me! You must escape for your own safety. But the children are so absorbed in their play, they say to one another, oh, Dad's always so pessimistic. Let's just play and keep playing and ignore what he's saying. But it is that bad. And the house is on fire and is about to crumble on top of them in fiery destruction. So yes, the Bible's assessment of the condition of the unredeemed soul is indeed, if you want to use the word, pessimistic. It is also absolutely accurate. It is the only way to hope and to glory. Our task then is not to question the appropriateness of what God has revealed. When God gives His assessment of the depravity of our heart and of the dramatic outpouring of the Spirit that is necessary to redeem us, our calling is not to stand back in judgment on God's revealed Word, but to believe it and to align our worldview with it. And to this end, 2 Timothy 3 delivers a healthy dose of this reality. It's lined with hope. It's intended, in fact, to stabilize Timothy's hand as he contends for the truth at the church at Ephesus. So first, Paul exhorts Timothy to grasp this reality. In our culture, this sounds pessimistic. When we see it from God's perspective, it's reality. This reality is this, we could say it this way, the moral morass of the last days. We must understand the moral morass of the last days. Verse 1 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy But understand this, the Apostle writes to his understudy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and the list goes on. Let's stop for just a moment and consider this first verse. But understand this, when we find the word but, in particularly starting a chapter, but in all events, there is some connection to what precedes. 
So what is he saying? What is he drawing on? That is found in chapter 2. Let's just say verse 25 and 26. Here he speaks to Timothy about correcting his opponents with gentleness. That is the false teachers. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. He does not say accept their false teaching. Allow them to teach whatever they choose to teach. No, he says confront them and correct them in their false teaching, but do so gently. The reason is they may repent. If you make it a war of words, you make it a personality conflict, they're going to become all that more entrenched in their thinking. But if you will gently confront them, there's an opportunity that they may repent and change. They may indeed, verse 26, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But, Timothy, what does that say? Realistically, Paul instructs Timothy, he must come to terms with the moral morass of the last days. Not everyone who teaches false doctrine is going to repent. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Before we move further, as we look at this, Paul is really going to now pan back for a moment from the false teachers that Timothy is facing at Ephesus, and he frames the battle in the larger eschatological setting. You're having this trouble with these false teachers. Let's come back and look at this in the big scope of things. In the big scope of things, we're in the last days. Why do I say that? What are these last days? As we pool together other texts of Scripture, we learn, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. In Acts chapter 2, Peter refers to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as fulfillment on some level of Jeremiah's prophecy concerning the last days. James 5 and verse 3, James chides the rich of the day for stockpiling treasures in the last days. Jude 18 also speaks of the last days as present. In fact, this text, here, Paul will speak of the last days with a present aspect. Notice in verse 5 as we jump ahead, we'll get back to this, but a summary statement, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So here's the characteristics of what will be future in the last days, but what is in fact present. Avoid these people right now. We also see indication there in verse 6 where he says, for among them are those. Now these are people who are present right now. So when you read verse 1, be careful because as it says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It doesn't mean that this is some end time far ahead of our own. Hebrews 1-2 is very much a key here. The last days are the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. These are the last days, the last period in which Christ is holding out salvation hope before His second coming. In these last days, these last days, there will come times of difficulty. What kind of difficulty are you thinking of, Paul? Verse 2, for, here's the difficulty, people will be lovers of self. This list is going to go down through verse 4 and then be summarized in verse 5. Let's take these just briefly, one at a time. The characteristic vices of the last days starts with this statement, people will be lovers of self. 
go around to Christian churches today in this community across this land, you will find a massive number and percentage of Christians who actually think self-love is a virtue. We've come that far. Now there is a natural protective love of self that is assumed in Scripture. And those parents of small children, when you walk to the edge of a cliff, you're glad for that self-protective love that's natural, innate to us. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's an assumed love of self. But what Paul speaks of here, and what very often flies under the banner of appropriate self-love in our culture and even in churches, is putting the love of self over the love of God, putting the love of self over the love of others. This will characterize the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. They will be secondly lovers of money. There will be materialistic greed that marks culture. They will be proud. This speaks specifically of one who brags and boasts, stretching the truth to make himself or herself look better than they really are. Arrogant. An attitude of superiority. Abusive. This is The word is typically used of speech, of harsh speech. Disobedient to parents. This will mark these difficult last days. Ungrateful. It speaks of having no respect for heritage or for the labors of others. Taking things for granted. Unholy. That is wickedness. Verse 3, the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be heartless. That is destitute of natural love such as for parents. They will be unappeasable. Refusing to reconcile with others. Refusing to negotiate peace. This is wanting to keep a war of words going. Wanting to divide people and keep factions. They will be slanderers. This is gaining personal advantage by falsely accusing others. They will be without self-control. This marks our day, doesn't it? The word was typically used of sexual control. Usually the word speaks of that, but it may be used in a broader sense. The incapacity to control sexual passions the incapacity to control our speech and our attitudes and our actions toward others. People that are simply out of control because they're controlled by self. The brutal. Not loving good. That is, they rejoice in evil. They may see good, but they don't love it. They don't appreciate it. In fact, it's not popular. It's ridiculed when they see good. Verse 4, these times of difficulty will be such for people will be treacherous. This speaks of one who betrays a friend or abandons someone who is in danger. They will be reckless, rash, thoughtless, impatiently selfish. They will be swollen with conceit, inflated with a sense of their own importance. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now here the list ends. It's very interesting because it now comes back full circle. Where did the list start? The love of self, the love of money, and it ends with the love of pleasure rather than the love of God. And that's what's really at the heart of this all, of this depravity. A failure to love God strikes at the essence of our sin. 
The chief end of man, declares the Westminster Confession, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief commandment, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, is what? It is to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. To pour your entire being into the love of God. The reality is, and let's get this and be clear on it for life, the reality is that the only source of lasting, pure joy in this world is God. God created us to find our love and our joy in Him. He calls us to give ourselves to that pursuit throughout our lives. But in place of loving God, the sinful heart loves self, and it loves money, and it loves pleasures. And the love of God sinks lower and lower on the list. I wonder, is the love of God the primary concentration of your life? Were it possible for you to be arrested for loving God and pursuing the love of God with all of your heart, could you be convicted? When we love other things apart from God, or when we love other things in place of God, all kinds of vices follow and our souls are left destitute. That is the picture of Romans chapter 1 and that is the picture of verses 2-4 through here. Everything caves in as we give ourselves to the love of self and the love of pleasure and the love of money. All of these other vices surround it. Augustine wrote, there is a city, that is, there is a people, there is a society, there is a city whose love, who, which loves self to the contempt of God, and another city which loves God to the contempt of self. Which is it for you? Which is it for me? Are we pursuing the love of God with all of our heart, or are we characterized by our world, loving self and pleasure and money and fighting and warring in all of these godless vices. Now these are not, I don't think, categories of sinners. That there's a sinner who falls into the category of heartless. But rather, all of these sins are potential for anyone that is separated from Christ. These are general evidences of the depravity that is in our heart. And how do you read this? If you're awake and reading this and you're aware of your world, we can take each of these phrases and, and, and words and we can demonstrate every one of them with the morning newspaper. We see all of this all of the time. It describes our world. It's an accurate depiction of a world separated from Christ. But when you think of this, this is marking the last days. Does it not mark the days before Christ? Could we not demonstrate all of these sins as pervasive issues in the Old Testament, for instance? In fact, if we dig a little bit deeper and go a little bit closer, when you read this list, do you not see the reflection of your own face? Who among us can look at any of these phrases or words and say, I'm not guilty? This is the sin that's in us. This is the sin from which we must be rescued. As I hear these words, love of self and love of money and pride and arrogance and abusiveness, disobedience to parents, as we hear these words resound, some 
maybe less tempting than others, some less a part of our experience, but every one of them on some level, there's a temptation there that is seated deep within us. We must be liberated from this sin. We might be tempted to think that this is a generic list about others, about the world, but it's about us. We might be tempted as well to think that it's a generic list that doesn't have anything to do with Timothy in his setting, which is not the case either. But before that, let's first get the summary statement in verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. So this has everything to do with Timothy right now where he is. You see, these last days are there. Ironically, this depravity we'll see in verse 5 is evidenced by people who claim to follow God. They are people who have a mere appearance of godliness. They are devout, but godless. They are religious, but unrighteous. Behind the mask of religiosity is a heart mired in sin. What is their focus? Remember chapter 2 and verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. These are people who are fighting over theological debates about words and myths from the Old Testament and genealogies and all kinds of things that they would read into them. Verse 16 of chapter 2. Avoid irreverent babble. All it's going to do is lead to ungodliness. Verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. You remember Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. False doctrine. These petty debates about meaningless religious trivia. What is missing in all of this is that it's wrong. It violates the truth of God. But what is also missing is that it does not evidence the transforming power of God. Where the truth is proclaimed, the Spirit of God takes that truth and sanctifies His people and changes the moral behavior of the people who follow Christ. So Timothy's call here is to avoid such people who do nothing but talk about religiosity. And his call to avoid them proves that the last days are on. He is to separate himself from fellowship with such professing Christians who deny the very power that they profess. The transforming power of the Gospel is not operating in their lives. So all of these vices are evidenced in them who have an appearance of godliness, but are not transformed by the power of God in their daily lives rather than being conformed by the indwelling Spirit to the likeness of Christ, they're self-serving, they're pleasure-seeking, money-loving, divisive, proud, unloving people. So the more general list of vices in verses 2-4 through apply directly to individuals in Timothy's world whom he is to avoid. Thinking of 1 Corinthians 5, that, that passage, He's not saying avoid people like this who are unbelievers. He's not saying avoid godly people who occasionally stumble into sin and repent and move forward. He's saying there are people who say they are Christians, but they are characterized by the godlessness of this world. Avoid those kind of professing Christians because not all Christians are Christians. 
Having described the moral morass of the last days, Paul now gets more specific. And he describes in detail a situation going on right there. And we might call this the MO of religious creeps. Which is what he gives us here in verses 6 and following. Avoid such people. For among them, among these kind of appearing, who appear to be godly, but who are not transformed, among them, verse 6, are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. There's their MO, their method of operation, is to worm their way into the homes of morally weak, undiscerning women. Paul's not talking about women in general, but apparently is well aware of the actual schemes that are being worked by the false teachers in Ephesus. This was the setting of the day. Wealthier women in particular were at home during the day. While servants did the household work to some degree, their husbands would be gone. And it was very common for these traveling philosophers and teachers to come and to kind of work their way. I mean, it probably didn't take real long to get a list in the town of who the, who the women might be that would have some means to bring you in and were easily brought into your teaching. Well, these are now Christian teachers professing who are taking the same worldly pattern and they're worming their way into homes and they are preying upon women who are too godless in their own hearts to discern the truth. And so they're peddling their philosophies, their new theological concept. Have you ever heard this before? Let me tell you what's really there in that genealogy in the Old Testament. Let me talk to you about this story behind the story. And the ears perked up and there was all kinds of interest and there was probably some money that flowed and sometimes some sexual favors. This was what was going on. So they're sneaking into homes, preying upon weak, gullible women who were easily awed by pious-sounding arguments from Scripture. But ironically, these women willing to believe almost any novel thing were so morally warped, they were incapable of learning anything of value. Mark those teachers, says Paul, and avoid them. Do not cooperate with them. Call others to be warned about them. Now, we don't have anything like this today. I imagine this kind of thing has happened occasionally. This is not a pattern. This is not a problem that we're dealing with in our day. How do false teachers worm their way in today? Well, one way that it happens is on the radio waves. They get their way into a car. Or probably more prominently, on the television screen where preachers spew false doctrine day after day. And people tired from work in the middle of the day, we see this woman sit down at the television screen and hear this preacher talk about things she's never heard before. It's so interesting and he just looks so good and, 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 and he's so articulate. And Wow, what does he have to say here? Or sometimes maybe just sitting down to laugh at the preacher and then saying, well, he's got a point there. And soon they're drawn in. Or the man who comes home after work or maybe on early on a Sunday morning and wants to just tag into this preacher. And here's what he's saying. This is how they worm their way in in our day. 
There's books, there's websites, there's DVDs of hearing this teacher teach. And on some level, we even need to be exercise caution in our own church with anyone who would ride a hobby horse position and try to draw others into fruitless discussion. This is the key to the Christian life. This one little thing. This one little doctrine. This one little passage. And I have the the corner on it. And you need to see this too. We've got to be cautious of all this type of operation. Now there's an imbalance here. Some churches, some leaders of churches have said, you should only listen. You should only hear teaching from your pastor teachers in the church. Maybe a lot of times there's a lot of pride behind that guidance. And that's imbalance. God has provided some gifted teachers in this world that perhaps can give us biblical truth and we can benefit from them and grow. I think that's in balance to say only listen to teachers from your church. In fact, it may not be wise. But there's an imbalance on the other side that says, I'll listen to whoever I choose to listen to and it's nobody else's business what teacher I'm listening to. That also is imbalanced and wrong. I think a proper balance between is if you are gaining supplemental teaching from a television preacher, a radio preacher, some DVD set that you're playing at your home, if that's something that you're gaining from, you desire to learn from, talk to a pastor. Talk to a spiritually discerning person in your church. Interview people a little bit here and there to say, is this individual on track? What should I be warned about? Is this appropriate? to chase this teaching. If it's faithful teaching, you can grow from it, then godly people will confirm what you're hearing. And they will support you in it. I think the balance is, let's gain what we can from others outside the church as God gives that opportunity, but let's be sure that we have tested what we're doing with other spiritually discerning people, particularly those that are part of our own body and our exercising watch care over us and among one another. Well, this is the horrible situation that's taking place that Timothy is facing. These weak women burdened with sins who are being overwhelmed by these teachers have nothing to do with any of this, says Paul to Timothy. And then continues, verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They're men of corrupt, they're men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Who on earth is Janus and Jambres? These are the two men, though not mentioned in Scripture, who were uh, court magicians in Pharaoh's court as Moses came and presented the case of delivering the Israelites. They were simulating His miracles. They were striving to oppose Moses. And in the end, they were uncovered as disqualified. They are men who oppose the truth of God. And so are these men, says Paul to Timothy. These men that you're dealing with, these false teachers, they too are corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Just as Janus and Jambres were exposed, so will they be. Verse 9, here we have encouragement for Timothy, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as was that of these two men. 
Janus and Jambres mimicked the miracles of Moses, but in the end failed to match him and their fraud was exposed. Now, Timothy, listen. Those who oppose God's truth, they may be in power. They may be in the majority. They will oppose the truth and all who honor it, but Timothy, know this, they will never win. Never. The truth will always prevail. I am in chains, but God's Word is not chained. You are facing false teachers, but the truth will always prevail. They will not get far. Their folly will be made plain to all. Those who peddle false doctrine will eventually be exposed by the immorality and by the folly of their lives. You remember what Jesus taught us? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they're going to look good on the outside. They're going to sound good on one level. But beware of those false teachers in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. What did He say? How do you recognize them? You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, it may take us a while may take us a while, particularly when they are sealed behind all types of walls of media protection. It may take a while for us to figure out how that false teacher treats his wife. It may take us a while to find out what kind of a father he is. It may take a while for us to find out what his sexual activities are behind closed doors. It may take a while to find out that he's a thief and is stealing money from the ministry and is living in extravagant materialism. It may take a while to find out his drug abuse, his alcohol abuse, his self-serving arrogance may not be seen right now, but there will be a clip that reveals it somewhere down the road. Paul is not saying that every teacher who falls into sin is corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Obviously, good people fall into sin, but they repent, they leave their sin, they move forward, they're restored. But what he is saying is if you have a person that is teaching false doctrine, they are peddling false teaching. That doctrine, that religiosity, that discussion is a mask for moral depravity. What's going on in the heart is not good. Because the only thing that purifies is the true Word of God. The true Word of God held in truth purifies the soul. They're going to stumble. Somewhere along the line, you're going to see it. As we think on this instruction, it's a heavy text. All this sin and depravity and wickedness. But what we need to do, I think, as we grab a hold of this passage of Scripture is to grasp the reality of depravity. The Bible does not shy away from this theme. Churches shy away from it too often. Christians shy away from it too often. But God does not. He talks about the depravity in our heart. You look at this list. There may be someone here that I speak to today you look at this list and you say loving self, loving money, pride, arrogance, abusiveness, disobedience to parents, ungratefulness, unholiness, heartlessness. 
the lack of control, the love of pleasure more than the love of God, that's me. That's honestly who I am. I want to say to you as gently as I can, you need to understand that you're in a burning house and it's coming down on your head. It's time to leave your sin. It's time to come to the work of Jesus Christ who has died to pay the penalty of sin and has risen from the dead to give us transforming life. This message of the Gospel as we come to receive the gift of forgiveness of sins, God takes a presence within us through His Spirit and begins to transform and to change us into the likeness of Christ. But we must come first to say, I am this sinner. And I need this rescue from Christ. Come today. Come to Christ and to His saving grace and be washed free of these sins. Not that they will be no longer temptation, but that their penalty will have been paid. Come to Christ. For those of us who know Christ and have been cleansed of our sin, we know that these sins continue to tempt and draw us away. We need to root them out. We need, secondly, to remember that not every Christian is a Christian, and I need to take that to heart. We need to detect these sins in the world around us, not with a holier-than-thou attitude, but with a realistic understanding of the prevailing state of affairs, the fight that's going on within my heart, and the fight that is going on in the broader culture around us. Being caught in the snare of Satan. As we move forward as God's people in response, there's two things I think we have to say in light of this text that really matter. The first thing is truth matters. True doctrine is utterly essential. It is utterly essential because only true doctrine purifies. Where we embrace false doctrine, there is nothing there to change and to grow us. We need to pour over the Scriptures. We need to understand them in grammatically and historically. Understanding the Scriptures in their setting. We need to be hearing good, solid teaching of God's Word so that we're more and more discerning of what the truth is and what the Bible is really saying and equipped against false doctrine to hear it quickly and to discern it and run from it. Truth matters. But secondly, the dovetail with that idea is that godly living matters. And this we must grasp. True doctrine produces the opposite of verses 2-4. through When the true Word of God comes into our soul and we've been cleansed by the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is working in us so that we are not lovers of self and lovers of money. He works to make us not proud but humble. Not arrogant, but gentle. Not abusive. Not disobedient to our parents, but obedient in respect to, of God and of them. He gives us a heart for others. He leads us to be peacemakers. He helps us to guard our tongue so that we don't hurt other people with it. We don't want to hurt other people with our tongue. The Spirit of God transforms us through the true doctrine and through the indwelling of the Spirit that we control our bodies sexually. We have interests. 
temptations. But we fight them and we want to fight them. We want to pursue the purity to which God has called us sexually and in every other way, guarding our tongues and our attitudes and our goals, controlling our bodies, using them as a stewardship from God, not abusing them for selfish interests. When the Spirit of God dwells within, we're not treacherous. We're accommodating and welcoming and loving. We're not reckless. We're thoughtful of other people. We're not swollen with conceit. We're humbled by the grace of God, willing to say the hard word even when it costs us, and willing to not say the word we might say to promote ourselves. The Spirit of God leads us not to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, but to love every pleasure as it flows from a deeper love of God. To have far more than an appearance of godliness, but to know that the purifying Word of God is operative in our lives and is producing the fruit of the Spirit in us so that we look at what we've learned from the Word of God and we don't simply have a head full of knowledge, but we have a life that's being transformed. Words that are being controlled and ministering grace. Passions that are being controlled and given to God. Interests that are consumed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ and goals and purposes of life that are driven by our Master to glorify Him and to live for the joy that is found in Him alone. When we're truly being purified from sin, our love and our purpose in Christ grows and develops. So this is, in the end, not a pessimistic word. It's a realistic word that calls us to love God with all of our hearts so that our love will be kept from corruption and will keep us from sliding into the moral morass of a world alienated from Christ or perhaps for you to come out of this moral slime and to come and be washed clean by the Spirit of God through the forgiveness of that God gives as a gift of His grace by His mercy. Let's bow for prayer. We have no problem, Father, in the authority of Your Word, praying and saying that we are desperately needy of Your mercy and grace, that we are sinners. We come together as sinners. We congregate as sinners and we rejoice to do so. We rejoice because that's not the end of the story. We rejoice that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of our sin. We come as forgiven sinners, striving to root out those passions, those interests, those self-centered and self-serving purposes that draw us away from the purity of faith in Jesus Christ. I pray in behalf of anyone separated from Jesus that they will recognize the danger of their condition. And I pray that You'll bring them to salvation today. I pray, Father, in behalf of those who know You as Savior, that we will rejoice in Your presence to be purified by Your Word. And may we pour ourselves into the task of knowing it and being transformed by it. May we be able to look back upon our lives and say, God is doing a work of transformation.
I am growing in grace. I pray to this end. There may be some among us who are holding on to particular sins. It's sucking the life out of them. It's drawing them ever slowly away from You. They're seeing less and less of Your splendor and Your glory every day. I pray, God, that You'd rescue them. That they get out of the burning house. They come to repentance and to trust in You. Do this work in us, I pray, for our good and for Your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.